Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, April the 30th, 2023, last day of April. April is the funny month or the month of jokes. April's Fool's Day, of course, launches the... Uh, the month, and we've done a number of shows in the past about the role of humor in politics, in economics, and indeed in the environment. Um, the beginning of the month, we had Aaron Sachs, an environmental writer, on saying that we need to treat the global environmental crisis, the crisis of global warming, in, in terms of comedy. Why dark, dark comedy matters in the fight against climate change is the subtitle of his book, and humor in politics has also been a subject we've covered. We dealt with a Republican um, congressman, Rick Keller, who believes that self-deprecating humor is valuable. He writes about that in his memoir, Chase the Bears, Little Things to Achieve Big Dreams. We need to be funny. Uh, humor is seen as the best antidote, not just to theocracy in the workplace, but also in politics, according to Paul Barras, another of our guests. Uh, we had a show on whether conservatives can be funny with a writer, Nick Marks, who believes that actually uh, conservatives make humor work sometimes uh, better for them than the left. And we talked to the former uh, Czech ambassador to America, uh, Michael Zantowski, about humor being the best antidote to tyranny. The Czechs, of course, have a long history of using humor to counter um autocracy of one kind or another. My guest today on the show, Sophia uh, McClellan, who is an academic at um, Penn State University, uh, considers herself uh, an expert on uh, what she calls on her Twitter page, uh, laughism or, or laughism, which means that she's a humorist of one kind or another. And she has a new book out, uh, Dealing with Humor and Satire. Trump was a joke. How satire made sense of a president who didn't. Um, Sophia is joining us from somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania. Uh, Sophia, welcome and congratulations on the book. I don't suppose it's very funny in Pennsylvania at the moment, is it? Uh, you mean, is my book funny or is it funny living here? Both. Is your book... <laughs> In all seriousness, um, humor is, of course, a very serious thing. Is your book, Trump was a joke, suggesting that we don't take him seriously, that we should laugh at him, or that it helps us make sense of him? It's the latter. It's, in fact, that the best way to take Trump seriously is through satire. Explain why. What, what, how, how, how does satire... And of course, the history of satire, there's a long history of satire in terms of from the, the, the satirists of antiquity to Jonathan Swift about making sense of absurdity in politics through satire. How does satire help us, Sophia? So the best way to think of it, and you've actually had guests on the show that, that sort of come at this from a very similar angle. You know, we think about even issues as serious as climate change. Why, why is comedy helping? Uh, Trump was without question one of the most unusual 
presidents this country's ever had. Certainly he was an unusual candidate and he was very unusual in office and unusual in the sense that he embodied a lot of extremes. He also disrupted almost all of the traditional narratives the media uses to cover uh, politics. And so what satire does is, first of all, it deals with the issue on its own terms, right? It doesn't necessarily try to understand Trump inside an existing narrative framework. It then uses its own sort of critical uh, perspective with the artifice and play and fun of irony. So if Trump was sort of uh, a circus figure, then what satire does is it allows you to take the funhouse mirror and put it up against the circus figure so you can actually see it in a way that isn't absurd. Trump was so unusual and strange, but satire helped unpack him in ways that no other straight narratives could do. So that's a simple way to talk about it. You had a piece in Salon about uh, uh, from February of this year, Donald Trump is the worst kind of fool. Um, what is a fool and why is he the worst kind? Are there, is there such a thing as a good kind of fool? Well, certainly not when they're heads of state. But in, the, in particular situations, one of the things that we know about Donald Trump is that he doesn't get comedy. He doesn't understand it. In fact, there's a number of stories of times when he appeared, for example, on SNL or alongside comedians, and he just simply demonstrated again and again that he doesn't understand the concept of a joke. He doesn't get punchlines. He only understands things like attention and adoration and praise. And he also understands criticism, right? He knows when he's being mocked in a negative way. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one way in which he's a bad kind but of But he used to, uh, I mean, the whether or not he appreciates humor now. In the old days, pre-president, he did have a sense of humor. He, he, he recognized that he was a bit of a, a joke and some of his humor was that he was in on that joke. Yeah, in fact, the book uh, takes an entire long view dating back to the 80s on exactly the kinds of jokes that have circulated about Donald Trump and, and sort of examines them by decades and explains twists in the story. Uh, especially, of course, the when he uh, decides to ask Barack Obama to produce his birth certificate and says he'll give $5 million if he does it. Th those kinds of uh, jokes that came out of particular Trump absurd behaviors. Uh, you're right. It's a long history. You're, it's also true that he got less and less capable of handling any kinds of jokes. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that any time that Alec Baldwin portrayed him on SNL, Trump tweeted critically at the performance. And we've just, this is again, one of these novel features. We got kind of used to it during Trump, but it's extremely strange to have a president pay that much attention to people making fun of him and then cry out, I'm you know, so offended, this is, but it, you know, he would either say the show was terrible, wasn't funny, but then he also looked into both the FCC, could he shut down SNL? Could, she, could he sue them? Could he block basically the show from having further impersonations? And so that's just a level of being you know, thin-skinned 
that, uh, you know, we've never seen before. So the subtitle of your book, I think most people, including myself, believe that Trump was and continues to be a joke. Um, how does satire, and the subtitle is, how satire made sense of a president who didn't? So you're suggesting that um, the president didn't make sense. How does satire help make sense of the Trump phenomenon? He was president for four years, and it's quite conceivable that he'll be, re he'll be quote unquote, re-elected president in 2024. At the moment, it looks like he's going to be the Republican uh, nominees dominantly popular within the party. So amongst 40 or 50 percent of Americans, he's anything but a joke. Well, sure. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of tricky because when I I mean, that's sort of a separate question from your dominant one. But I will say when I speak with people who even did vote for Trump, I think they do see the degrees to which he's absurd. So, um, again, what satire did was you had a president who was both aggressive, perhaps one of the most sort of viciously cruel in terms of policy. These are real things. On the other hand, he's up there kind of making a fool out of himself, not really capable of speaking the English language, flailing around when he gives rally speeches. So it makes it very hard for the media to deal with him because he's he's got, he may, he's more sort of evil than Dick Cheney Right. But then he's also this goofball like George W., who, you know, gave you lots of sort of examples of silliness all wrapped into one person. So what satire did was just unpack those things and make it very easy to say this guy has pretty terrible policies. He's also, you know, a, a narcissistic, um, you know, overblown ego, et cetera, et cetera. So I think capturing the persona was one of the things that satire did better than the news. The other thing, though, that's most important is it helped. But that observation wasn't satirical. You just, I mean, who made sense then? Was it Baldwin? I know your your book comes with an intro from Michael Moore. Was it Moore? Was it John Stewart? Who made the most sense or who does make the most sense of, of Trump? Well, at, at a basic level, the book argues that it wasn't just that there was, say, one satirist who gets the award for doing the whole job better. In fact, one of the things that Trump really consolidated as a um, an extreme political figure was this observation I have, which is that for the first time, we really had satirists defending institutions. This is, again, for your listeners who love Satire, you know, Jonathan Swift, for example, is just, you know, criticizing the power elite. And that's mostly what satirists tend to do. Under Trump, the satirists started to get worried that Trump was breaking all of the fundamental institutions that are central to uh, the United States, whether it was the First Amendment or the EPA or all of these things that Trump just didn't even understand, branches of government. And so all of a sudden, satirists weren't just forming in a critical role, doing sort of the Alec Baldwin critique. They were also advocating for uh, critical uh, you know, pillars of our institution. So Hasan Minhaj, who had a show called Patriot Act, would go on about how the Trump cabinet was actually, each and every one of those people were picked to lead agencies they hated. 
And so this, of course, is wrapped in a lot of satirical jokes that I'm not a performer and I can't entertain you with, but there's tons of art and comedy and how he makes that point. But he says these things and no one else is saying them. And he reveals them in a way that's very clear for his audience to see. Well, isn't Trump himself in, a, in, a, in an odd way a satirist that he... He loathes the institutions. He was elected by people who loathe the, the dominant institutions and perhaps even ideologies of, of state, of power in this country. So he was elected as a grenade and he treats himself as one and he takes great pleasure in blowing stuff up. Isn't that what satirists do? Uh, to a certain extent, they can. But Trump is in no way a satirist because he doesn't understand irony. And so if you don't have, you know, if you don't have irony, you can't be doing satire. What you're doing, like you said, is blowing things up. There's a huge difference between being sort of a, a, a mocking bully, right? And a, you know, clever satirist. Uh, they're not the same. They can look the same. They can have, and one of the things that's always tricky is satirists tend to incorporate that sort of level of bullying mockery at times. And in fact, you saw much more of it during Trump because I think satirists got very frustrated and they would just swear and say something crass. But that's not satire, right? That's just mockery. What happens in a country, Sophia, when not everybody sees the joke? You believe Trump was a joke. I, I tend to agree with you. 50, 60, maybe 70, 65 percent of Americans believe he was a joke. But not everyone. Some people take him seriously. The idea of a joke, of course was brilliantly treated by Milan Kunder in his great book, uh, The Joke, uh, which, um, which made the idea of a joke uh, a, 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 a political mechanism for challenging the Russian establishment in Czechoslovakia. But that's not true in America. There are some people who, I don't know if they're in on the joke, but they don't see it as a joke. Oh, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, that's sort of the beauty of this country. Not everybody's going to ever see things the same way. I mean, when you were saying before, like, oh, you know, Trump was elected by people who defend our institutions. Well, I mean, sort of one of our core institutions is the concept that we have a democracy and Trump does not respect that. Um, the facts are that, yeah, he has a lot of supporters. They're very, very literal and how they support him. In fact, there's lots of research again on sort of the Republican brain on jokes and the uh, you know liberal or left brain on jokes. The conservatives and seem to be in some ways, I don't know, funnier, but they seem to, we, we did that show with Nick Marks. It seems as if perhaps humor comes more naturally to conservatives than it does to liberals in this country, at least. I, yeah, I don't think the research bears that out. I, I've read that. Well, that's a classically unfunny liberal response. Well, I mean, you know. What do you mean the research bears it out? Well, uh, it depends on how you want it. So again, I mean, I am a professor. So what we do is, as opposed to just having an idea or an instinct about things, we figure it out. So if you wanted to make the case that conservatives have a better sense of humor, produce more comedy than liberals, there's a lot of ways you would do that. You would determine how many people consume these things or how many jokes, for example, are on late night comedy and aggregate data on what was the subject of the joke, et cetera. And the facts are that that's not true. 
conservatives don't dominate comedy. It doesn't mean that they don't have it. And so I think the problem is that for a long time, there's been this idea um, among some people, not me, that say conservatives can't be funny, which is not true at all. And in fact, there's conservative satire. Well, remembering that comedy and satire aren't the same exact thing. Um, there's a lot of good and sharp and insightful conservative satire in this country has always had it. But if you were to literally determine what you wanted to use to measure how much is, a, you know, who wins, it's always going to be the case that there's more satire from the left than from the right for the simple reason that satire sort of calling card is disrupting the status quo. And the right in general, again, historically, has been about defending institutions and status quo. So you're gonna get way more jokes, you know, mocking Clarence Thomas, for example, for, you know, being corrupt than say, I don't know, Biden for being tired and old. So that's just- Although I can imagine, uh... Uh, a conservative book, but Biden was or is a Trump, you know, this old doddery old man who half the time you're not quite sure what's going to come out of his mouth. Um, Kundera's book, the, the Joke, is a classic, a brilliant book, but he, 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 was, he went to live in France. He chose not to perhaps fight the authorities, which is quite controversial. Some people have accused him and, and, and that tradition of being quietist. I, is there an element here, um, Sophia, in your book about Trump being a joke and the use of satire? It's a form of quietism. You just make him seem absurd. And that's how we live with the guy. So this is a great question because it is one of those things that you might think is a natural consequence of satire. Say, I watch an episode of The Daily Show, and then I just turn off the TV and I'm, I'm satiated, right? So all of the frustrations I have over the Trump administration are diffused through the comedy. The research on this is really conclusive and it's really exciting, in fact. There's a clear distinction that people who, who consume satire are for, far more active in politics. They vote more, they donate more money, they sign more petitions, they are just simply more active in every way we think of in terms of what indicates participation in this democracy. So we know there's a positive correlation between audiences of satire and civic engagement. So what exactly are they watching? Well, so that's interesting because there were studies that were able to be very specific, especially during the, the period of time when we had Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report and Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. And you could really track viewers of those shows and their you know, voting behaviors. Uh, during the Trump administration, you didn't have those two guys having their back-to-back -back powerful satirical shows. In fact, you had this far more diffuse menu uh, you had, like I said, Hasan Minhaj on Netflix. You had still had your Comedy Central. Now Colbert was on CBS. So what you do is you, when you study this, you just simply ask the people in the, you know, in the studies to tell you, you know, check boxes. What are you watching? And so the shows were things like Samantha Bee's show. We had uh, again the Comedy Central. 
we had Colbert. And again, and we're talking about televised, uh, you know, sort of uh, satire news, satirical bits, SNL. Um, but then there's other, of course, really powerful sources of uh, Trump satire that were going on. And that's Andy Borowitz's column for The New Yorker. That's The Onion. So, you know, that there's uh, print. But yeah, I, I take your point, although I'm always, whenever anyone comes on my show and says the research shows, I'm always a little dubious about that because the research shows whatever you want it to be show. I wonder whether satire requires surprise. And all the stuff that you've mentioned is highly unsurprising, gets really boring quickly, in my view. To have good humor, does it require surprise? Does it require not having the echo chamber quality, perhaps, of a lot of the, the Trump critique from, from the progressive community? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So you have to have a couple of things. You have to have not just surprise, and this goes back to your point about the bomb throwing, you have to have disruption. So you have to, if the, if the joke is really predictable, then the audience doesn't like it. It's not right, but, but, but you know, taking, I don't know, Colbert or Stewart or any of these other people, the audience is echo chamber, so they're going to laugh at any joke that makes fun of, of, of Donald Trump. Um, I mean, you know, I, again, I think that's also true, but that's not typically so. So we want to just again, like make a distinction between just, oh, we just mocked this guy because he's got weird hair. Right. That's not satire. But yes, you're right. In that audience space, those people might laugh. But let's just take an example. So Desi Lydic has been uh, recently guest hosting on uh the uh, um, Daily Show because they have been doing a series of guest hosts since Trevor Noah stepped down. And she just came on right after Tucker Carlson had been fired. So if you were listeners, imagine, so I ask you, you know, what do you think the joke is going to be that Desi Lydic is going to say about Tucker Carlson being fired from Fox News? And they can guess all they want. But so Desi Lydic comes out and says, you know, what's really interesting is that Fox News, which seems to have a lot of anxiety about gender affirming uh, surgeries, just cut off its dick. Mm. And that's funny. It's just funny. And I watched it and I that is it funny. Satire and it was it was a surprise. It was funny. And so this is what I'm saying. I mean, satirist, even though you knew I was going to say something maybe negative about Tucker, but you didn't know how it was going to be creative and what my, you know, how it gets packaged. And that's the fun part. And it's a never ending creative, you know, it's sort of the beauty and art of satire. So you get it. And it's- you, you, uh, The book, as I said, comes with um, uh, a foreword from Michael Moore. Moore's quite controversial. Not everyone on the left likes him. To be a real satirist, do you have to be like Moore and actually be controversial? Um, again, you know, I tend to sort of um, say, you know, I don't want to have a litmus test for if you're a real satirist or not, that that feels like a bad idea. I think there are, um, and, and of course, you know, we tend to sort of uh, envision satire is on a spectrum between sort of being more vanilla and more uh, incisive. And so that's an easier way to think about it, right? More is far more incisive. And he really has, you know, he just doesn't mind if he's going to offend someone. If this is what he thinks needs to be said, he's going to do it. And, and the interesting thing about Moore is he's from 
the American working class. He has more sensibility on it than the coastal elites. He, he seems to understand better than most why Trump is, is popular, why he was elected and why indeed he may be re-elected. What would Moore's understanding uh, of the American working class add to our understanding of satire and, uh, and Donald Trump? Well, you know, that's a really good question, and it's got a couple of parts to it. I mean, I think one of the most important things that Michael Moore sees is that Democrats have been doing a lousy job in many, many, many ways of, of representing their so-called constituency, particularly when we're talking not just about the working class, right, but about rural America. And Moore is, at the end of the day, very critical at, you know, of capitalism. And so uh, he was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders. He's much more of a progressive, right, than a sort of centrist Democrat. So I think, you know, Moore knew, you know, again, with his background in Michigan, that uh, the Obama administration had failed in many, many ways uh, to really improve the conditions of the people there. And he knew that because of that, it might make someone like Trump really appealing. Um, so there's that part. The things that make more satire incredibly powerful, again, are that, you know, Moore kind of refuses to be a consistent satirist, which makes his satire even more powerful. Right, he's like, surprising. You never quite yeah, know yeah. what you're going to get with Michael Moore. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's serious, sometimes it's offensive, sometimes it's simply funny. It's just goofy, right? So it's it's got a very, very complex sort of aesthetic and um, it's also packaged with some very passionate and heartfelt political, uh, you know, uh, you know, goals. And so, again, sometimes he's just very sincere. He's not being sarcastic or ironic at all. And other times when, for example, one of my favorite things he did was when he writes this letter to Ivanka saying, please, you know, it's time for you to intervene and uh, get your, you know, you're the only one we're begging you right, to. Uh, to step up and, and, and get and talk sense to your father. Um, and it's a very funny, you know, he does some really, really, really funny stuff, but that is not, of course, not his only thing. Sometimes it's very straightforward. How important is it, do you think, for politicians, if not to be satirical, which is complex, sophisticated humor, but at least funny. I, I was thinking while you were talking about Hillary Clinton, who appears profoundly unfunny but apparently i've never met the woman but apparently she's actually very very funny privately i think trump's probably the reverse he sometimes appears quite funny in public but i'm sure privately he's humorless um why would someone like hillary is it just perhaps because she's a woman or a woman on the left or a progressive uh, on the progressive side of american politics but can one make some generalizations about why somebody like Hillary Clinton struggles to um, export her personal humor into the public space? We could talk about it, but I think the simple answer is she just doesn't have very much charisma. I mean, this was just one of her ongoing challenges. Uh, so, you know, I think what's more important in a, you know, a central political figure is not so much the ability to tell a joke or be funny. It's the ability to take a joke. 
and to understand, right, and and play in the comedic mm. space. Obama was very good at taking a joke. Oh, that. he was fantastic, and 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 there were and he knew that people were doing everything, making fun of him in every way, including his ears, on and on and on. Last night, uh, we just had the White, or yesterday, we had the White House Correspondents Association dinner with Roy Woods Jr. Uh, delivering the roast. He made fun of Biden. Biden laughs, right? So the best thing. You know, he made all the jokes you'd expect, joking about his age, joking about whether he's asleep, joking about him having confidential documents, et cetera, et cetera. All those having jokes, his sunglasses, his aviator yeah, sunglasses. Sunglasses, where's the laptop, whatever. He he makes the jokes and Biden laughs. Now, what was different is that Trump, again, the joke gets made and Trump is so offended. In fact, during his tenure as president, he refused to go to the yeah. White House Correspondents Association dinner because he couldn't take the roast. And wasn't uh, the roasting of him by Obama, wasn't that the thing that some people believe actually triggered the presidential run or the anger? Well, that for that story, you'll have to read my book because I... Well, you did. Don't give away all the secrets, uh, Sophia. How right. Trump was a joke, how satire made sense of a president who didn't. I think what you're suggesting is you, uh, whether or not you like Barack Obama, he he never took it. I mean, on the one hand, he never took himself too seriously, but because he was so self-confident, do you think there's a connection between that degree of self-confidence and humor or even satire? You know, self-confidence is an interesting term to use here. I, I, you know, I think. I or self-belief, perhaps. But but let's think about this. Like if we zoom out and we think about sort of our you know landscape of political leaders, you've got folks like Erdogan, you've got Putin, you've got Xi Jinping. None of these guys will let anybody say anything funny about them, right? Yeah, you're in jail. I don't think Putin lacks self-confidence. He lacks something, but it isn't probably that. We know that he lacks a capacity to allow people to make fun of him. And so, you know, I, I know you had someone else on. I, I suspect that one of the things when they were saying, you know, laughing at theocracies, you just see that in general, right, the more autocratic, the more dictatorial, the less comedy that administration will tolerate. And so at some level, it isn't so much about confidence as much as it is understanding that in democracies, things are messy. People are going to say things about you you don't like. And your best way of dealing with it is to laugh it off and move forward with your, you know, with your policy. And the, probably the best example of the absence of humor in a authoritarian theocracy all theocracies i guess are authoritarian or is in is in iran let's end with uh trump 2.0 which seems more and more likely I, I have to admit that i'm bracing myself for another round of um trump versus biden how can we make it funny i mean the jokes we know the jokes sophia about trump he's not going to reveal anything new can we laugh this time around rather than just cry or be horrified or leave the country? Well, I mean, I think that's actually what you're saying is one of the most important things to think about, which is that when you're faced with this really depressing landscape, at some level, if the comedy can keep you from depression, right? Uh, so, but I, I'm not going to, you know, are we going to watch Colbert or John Stewart will bring back a show? It's not relief. It's not that helpful, is it? We can't just laugh again at this buffoon. Well, one of the things that 
besides the fact that we just simply know that when you laugh, that's a good thing. But let's just zoom out and say one of the things that we get when we get something like Trump comedy is we get a community. So it's not just that you watched something and laughed. There's actually really cool data on how you're likely to share it. You share the clip or the, you tell someone the joke. And so you have this sense of not being alone and you build back your community you have a sense of belonging and democracies depend on that. That was one of the things that- in It's the not very funny there. Trump, well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on what you think funny is. I mean, again, I the point is the humor isn't the end of it. The humor is the spark that starts a series of uh, reactions, not just in the person who gets the joke, but in the, their behaviors and actions in the world that, that all coalesce together to try to defend our democracy from someone who is attacking it. Well, Trump was a joke how satire made sense of a president who didn't. It's just out. Uh, Sophia uh, McClellan is a, um, uh, a satirist and a laugh is it, a laugh is ist. I think that's your word. Uh, Sophia, is, are we going to, with your particular insight into humor, irony, satire, are we going to see another Trump president? What does an ironist or a satirist tell us? Is, is it likely? possible or impossible? I think it's likely he'll be the nominee. I don't think it's likely he will win. I don't see any reason why he's going to have more voters than he had last time. Well, I hope that's not a joke, Sophia. (laughs) No, that's serious. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, 